If I'm honest with you, when I get to this time of the year, I start looking back at the prior year and I start looking ahead to the next year. In fact, Megan and I used to have this kind of tradition where we would write down our favorite memories and put them in a jar, kind of on our entertainment center in the living room. And we did that, like, we did that really well. Like, 2013, I think, we, we just did an awesome job. We, we sat down on New Year's Eve, we read through them together. It was just this sentimental moment. We're watching the ball draw, reading through all the memories. And then we started in 2014, and then we had a kid. And we got to New Year's Eve on 2014, and I think we were asleep by, like, 6 o'clock. And so, and then... Then we had another kid in 2015. I don't think we've written any memories this year. I like to look back. You know, I like to look back. I like to look forward. Right around our one-year anniversary, this is before we had any kids, Megan and I did a, I think I called it a vision retreat. So we went and got a cabin. in Indi- We lived in Indiana at the time. Went and got a cabin on the lake. We sat down, and I had this article that I'd emailed her before, and I said, hey, babe, I want you to read this. Check it out. We're, we are going to set a plan for our lives, and this is going to be incredible. And so she read through the article. I came through. I had, I had a categorized and itemized goal-setting spreadsheet. And we, we started to write all these things down. Anything from like we want to pay. We had student debt at the time, pay off this much student debt. We want to increase our generosity by this much. You know, we want to go on this type of vacation. And we had it all like worked out. It was great. And then life happened. And like half of it came true, right? And so that was the only vision retreat we ever did. And maybe you are like me in that, that you like to plan for the future, but then you realize that your plans change, and then you're kind of like, okay, what do I do with that? Whether you're the type of person that likes to plan or you like to fly by the seat of your pants, this morning is going to be a good morning for you. Because I am going to be incredibly honest with you this morning, what I think the Word teaches about us making plans. And I think it's been, it's been really good for me. I've been mulling over this for a year and a half. I've been, I've been dying to preach this sermon, so I'm excited about it. I was at the Senesta with a friend of mine, Kevin, who's been a part of New City for about a year and a half now, even in the launch team phase. And I was a little anxious about the launch of the church, about, you know, we didn't, we didn't have all of our launch team metrics. Because we had, I mean, if you were on the launch team, you remember, we had these metrics that we wanted to see happen before we launched public worship. And I was a little anxious about it, and Kevin and I were sitting over at the Senesta, over BLT Sandwich or something like that, and Kevin asked me this question that I'm going to ask you today. And he said this, how often do we see God in the Bible telling us to plan for and be concerned with our future? And I started rattling off. You're, you're thinking the same things. You're thinking through the Bible right now. You're thinking, okay, where's this set in the Bible? I know I've heard something about this in the Bible. If there's no vision, the people perish. Okay, you've got to set a vision. Gather in the summer so you'll have food in the winter, so you've got to make a plan. Count the cost of the building before you build it, and that's about it. I'm serious. Like, you could, you could scour your Bible like I've been doing for the last year and a half, trying to find examples of people planning for the future, and, and that being like, thus saith the Lord kind of a thing, go prescriptive for us as the church to go do, and you won't find it. So the interesting thing that I've discovered is that the Bible doesn't talk about it. So then I go and I ask myself another question. Maybe you could ask yourself the same question. How much of my time do I spend planning for the future? And if I were to be honest with you guys about that part of it, it would be a lot of time. Maybe you spend a lot of time, maybe this time of the year is the time of the year where you, you're, you're going to get everything right in 2016. And what I've found in my life is that, for the most part, I spend a lot of time thinking about tomorrow and not as much time thinking about today. In fact, if everything that the Bible had to say, let's say we, we shrunk it down to microprint and we stuck, it on, we stuck it on a one-page piece of paper and we said everything that the Bible, 
everything in the Bible that has to do with how we live today versus how we live tomorrow, what we plan for. We could say that seven-eighths of the page would say, live in the moment today, seek the Lord today. And there'd be a little footnote at the bottom. You know what that footnote would say? Be responsible and wise with how you spend your time. Yeah, I don't know about you. I don't spend seven-eighths of my time seeking the Lord that way. So here's our dilemma. God has a plan, and we have God, which means that God is our plan. If we try and figure out God's plan without seeking him, it leads to heartache, it leads to disobedience, it leads to very painful things. And so today is going to be an incredibly practical sermon, and I've entitled it a very fitting title, Tomorrow is the Devil's Day. And I got that title from this quote from J.C. Ryle, who was an Anglican bishop of Liverpool in the late 1800s, and I'm pleased to read you this quote, so listen to this. Tomorrow is the devil's day, but today is God's day. Satan cares not how spiritual your intentions may be and how holy your resolutions, if only they are fixed for tomorrow. Oh, give not place to the devil in this matter. Answer him, no, Satan, it shall be today, it shall be today. Are you getting the point of where we're going this morning? The big idea of where we're going this morning is this. The best way to plan for the future is to seek Jesus today. If you wouldn't mind, let's stand and read God's word together. Because it's he that has the plans of Jeremiah 29, 11, that you've got on numerous decor around your house. It is he who's prepared the good works ahead of you that you could walk in him. And so we find our plan by seeking the Lord. So let's read Matthew 6, 25 through 34. God's word says this, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all of his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? Oh, you of little faith. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or today, where shall we live? Where should I work? Any of those things. For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But listen to this, guys. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Let's pray together. Father, I pray today that you would release the pressure valve on our lives. Lord, we all are tempted to set these plans for our lives, and when they don't come to pass, to be an accuser of our own lives, only secondary to the accuser himself, the devil. And, and today, Lord, we just, want, we just want to sit and we just want to bask and we want to soak in your presence. And we want to say today is what you've given us. And today is what we will seek you in. 
And Father, I, give, I pray that you'd give us great grace to be able to do that today. Uh, and that you would search our hearts and know us as we think about how the future might bring us a sense of anxiousness. And I pray that you'd free us from that. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6. And essentially, Jesus says that thinking about tomorrow will only lead to anxiety. Now, my question to you and to myself as I was thinking about this passage, and I like to, like to think about these things, what is anxiety? I mean, it's, we, we, we kind of think we know what it is, but what is anxiety? So I started thinking about it. You know, it's the feeling that you have when you come back from vacation and wonder if you still have a job because maybe you didn't meet your quarterly numbers that you needed to meet. It's the feeling of knowing that the bank account doesn't look full enough to pay the bills this month. It's the feeling of knowing you gave it all on a test for school students, and yet you still didn't seem to match up to what the teacher wanted. It's the feeling of having a child that seems to be headed in an ungodly direction, even though you've done everything that you can do. It's the feeling of not having a marriage that looks like your friends, even though each week you seek to love and to serve one another. It's the feeling of not having friendships that you long for, even though you've done everything that you know to do to have them. Anxiety, friends, occurs in our lives anytime that our loyalties within us are divided. Anytime that our loyalties are divided. So in each one of these caricatures that I've, that I've kind of sketched of you of where anxiety might crop up in your life, and you could paint your own, right? I mean, we've all got these things that could cause a sense of anxiousness in us. Uh, there's an element of trust present. Okay, God has provided. He's given the money, but I don't think it's going to be enough for tomorrow. God has provided. He's, he's given me friends but, but I want to have better friendships with them. So there's a sense of trust, but, but there's not a sense of longevity in the trust. And so we try to procure things on our own. <clears throat> in, the, in studying this this week, God really showed me something fascinating about this word anxiety. So anxiety in the Greek is this word metano. Can you say that with me? I'm just kidding. Metano is this word which that doesn't really mean anything to you unless you study Greek. But it, here's what's really fascinating, and this is why this should really mean something to you, is that it means to be pulled apart from the whole. Let me say that again. To be anxious means to be pulled apart from the whole. So to be in pieces. Now, you guys have all been in a place before where inside of you, it feels like your life is in pieces. Your stomach is in knots, and you don't know what to do with your life. That's when anxiety is, is, is creeping up in our lives. We go to pieces because we were created for wholeness and oneness with God, but yet something inside of us seems to be pulling us apart. This will likely be the only time that you'll ever see me use this sermon illustration. If this rings a bell to anyone in the room, some of you, this is a toy that was uh, created in the 70s, and the toy is called Stretch Armstrong. Now, Stretch Armstrong was uh, a childhood favorite of mine, uh, and, and typically what you would like to do with Stretch is that you would, it was, it was cool because you could like tear Stretch up, and he would just kind of go back to shape. It was awesome. I mean, so... It started out, I'll be honest, it started out by me just getting a stretch Armstrong and just kind of pulling him apart by myself, right? So you're like, oh man, this is so cool, just raw stretch. And he, you would let him go and he would eventually kind of go back to place somehow. It was this fascinating thing. Well then, my friends and I, 
Well, we got this idea that maybe we could all pull Stretch apart, and maybe he would go back to shape. And so we got three of us, and we got, you know, two of us got arms, and the other got the two legs, and we're pulling Stretch apart, and we're pulling and pulling and pulling. And I guess we had pulled Stretch a lot because Stretch explodes all over us. And I don't know if you know what's inside of Stretch Armstrong, but it's this corn syrup kind of pellet kind of, I mean, this thing that's not good for you. And it explodes all over my friend's bedroom, and Stretch Armstrong is literally in pieces. And I would like to to kind of prescribe to you that this is what's going on inside of us when anxiety is creeping up. And some of us have experienced it to the point where we feel like our lives are exploding into pieces because our interests are divided. We trust God, but we don't trust Him quite that much. There's nothing that reveals this more in our lives, anxiety, than what we think about today and what we think about tomorrow. So there's this cliche that a pastor told me probably 10 years ago, and I kind of took it as truth until I started thinking about how that relates to the Bible. And it's this right here. Pray like it depends on God and work like it depends on you. Now, that sounds nice, right? It's endearing. Pray like it depends on God. I'm going to pray like it depends on you, but by golly, I'm going to work like it depends on me. So what's the problem with that? What's not true? Because you see what it does is it it places this element of trust, like I'm going to verbally acknowledge that it all depends on God, but I'm going to work like it depends on me. And so what happens is there's never any rest, there's never any trust in the absolute sovereign power of our Lord. And this is how many of us live our Christian lives, is divided. We say that we trust God, but we live like he doesn't exist. And because of that, we're being pulled apart on the inside. I want you to turn to your neighbor right now, and I want you to say something to him. I want you to say this. I love you, but you're a terrible Savior. All right, ready, set, go. Oh, man. I didn't think you guys would actually do it. That's awesome. (laughs) That's good. No, that's good. That's good. No, it's the truth, though, right? You're not a good Savior. You're bad at that. You might be good at a lot of things, but you're you're not a good Savior. And here's what anxiety is. It's a symptom. It's a symptom, guys. It's like, you know, you go to the doctor because you have symptoms, Some of you are congested, it's that time of the year, you've got a runny nose, your kid's coughing. There's a symptom of something deeper going on. Anxiety is a symptom of this disease. You know what this disease is called? Self-trust. It's idolatry. We're trusting ourselves. And this whole section on the Sermon on the Mount, it's interesting because this whole section right here that we're looking at is in the context of money. This is why uh, previously before the text that we're looking at, No one can serve two masters. He said no one can serve God and money. And why can no one serve two masters? Yourself and God. Why can no one serve two masters? Because you're being stretched Armstrong apart, right? You're going to explode into pieces. It's not going to work out. And I love what the scriptures say as as Jesus begins to go through giving them examples. I I picture them kind of sitting on, well, actually, I kind of know where they were sitting. I was in Israel a few months ago, and and there's this area that they believe that Jesus was sitting when he gave the Sermon on the Mount. The interesting thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus, it wasn't a sermon given to thousands of people, right? There were tons of people around him. What did Jesus do? He took his disciples. He said, hey, guys, let's get away. Let's kind of go up on the, the hill a little bit. And he took, he took the 12, and he began to teach them what we know is the Sermon on the Mount. And, and he says something fascinating. Because I picture him, you know, looking at the lilies that would have been maybe in the grass around the, the hillside, around the, the Sea of, of, of Galilee, looking 
uh, at the birds that may have been flying around. And, he's, and he uses, he's, he's brilliant. Jesus is brilliant about using everyday, ordinary things to talk about the kingdom of God. He looks at them and he says, look, look at these birds. They don't go and gather up. They don't, they, don't, they don't sow and reap, yet God takes care of them. And what does he say? Are you not more valuable than they? I mean, do you actually think that I love you less than I love these birds? Or, or look at these lilies. I mean, aren't they? They're, they're beautiful. I mean, they're, they're not even Solomon arrayed, the richest man in the world, the wisest man in the world. He, he, he didn't even touch how beautiful a lily is. And, and, and don't I care for you more than that? And we see that God gives them, he shows them what an appropriate response to this sense of anxiousness within them. Because God is calling them to go on a journey here, right? To, to follow him, to be disciples, and he gives this teaching. And, and he says, what's, a, what's an appropriate response to our lives whenever things seem to get out of control? To seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all of the things that you're worried about, they'll be added to your life. God will give those things to you because he's the giver of every good and perfect gift. He will give those things to you. So, so it's a matter of order. What do we seek? Do we seek what we think we need or do we seek the Lord who gives us what we actually need? He says, seek first the kingdom. It, that's what makes us whole. That, that God is actually gracious in making us anxious. Think about it. That sounds weird. Some of you guys are like, what, what is he talking about? He's gone off his rocker. God is gracious in making us anxious. You know why? Because he's showing us that we can't trust ourselves. And so there's this symptom of self-trust. Anxiety creeps up. He's gracious. So when you're anxious, for us, friends, the best thing to do is to stop and say, okay, how, how am I being pulled apart to trust myself and try to trust God at the same time because it's not working out? How can I just hit pause on this whole thing and say, God, do what you want to do in 2016. I'm going to seek you every single day. And that's going to be my plan. That is my plan A, to rise in the morning and seek your face, Jesus. And you do what you want to do with my life. I'll be wise with that, but I'm going to leave these plans with an open hand because this is your life. It's you that's living inside of me. You think about Jesus and the answer that he gives for the anxiety that we experience. And, and you think about what Jesus did on the cross. The cross, is, is a, there's a sense of stretched armstrongness about the cross, Right? Jesus became the object of anxiety's force, being pulled apart. And he was pulled apart on the cross, friends, so that you can be put together forever. You don't have to be pulled apart trying to trust yourself. Jesus already did that for you. His, his, his body was destroyed, so yours doesn't have to be. We can trust him day by day. And because of his work, our lives, they no longer go to pieces. They're no longer exploding on the inside because we're trying to make it happen. It's interesting that the Israelites in the wilderness, as they've, you know, they're complaining. My kids and I are reading through this adventure Bible, and it's like a comic book. It's, it's really cool. I like reading it. And so we're reading through this, and last night we're reading about the Israelites, and, and God has just, he's just parted the Red Sea, and the Israelites have washed, they, they, they walk through it, and the, the Pharaoh and his men and the Egyptians, they've been washed away, right? And then they get on the other side, and they're like, oh, man, God is so great. And it doesn't take very long. So they start doing what? Complaining. And they say, God, you're, you're not taking, just take me back to Egypt. At least in Egypt, we had pots full of meat. And we're, we're eating like, you know, bird food out here. God, take us back to Egypt. You're not providing for us. You're, you're a bad savior. And so they begin to get anxious on the inside. 
And so God provides for them in his grace, and he, he turns this bitter water into clean water, and he gives them manna, right? And our kids are, and I are talking about this last night. And the interesting thing about the manna is this, right? There was this one lady, I can't think of her name, she tried to procure manna for the next day. She's like, oh, we got food. Let's save this up for the next day. She goes to eat the manna the next day, and what happens? It's bad, right? It's no good. This is because God's intention for the Israelites in giving them manna was to give them enough bread, enough manna for what? For tomorrow? No, no, no. For today. Except on the Sabbath, right? He said, you can, you can, you can store it up for the Sabbath because I don't want you to work on the Sabbath. So store up, you know, on, on Friday going into Saturday, store up enough for two days. And then the, the manna didn't go bad. It's amazing what God did with that. This is why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer teaches his disciples to pray like this. Give us this year our yearly bread. Give us this month our monthly bread. Give us this week our weekly bread. No, no, no. Give us this day our daily bread. Church, we're taught to look at today. Now, there's, I could go on about how we're being pulled apart, but I want to give you three very practical takeaways today, things that you can put into play right now you know, sometimes I'm kind of up in the clouds. I'm getting real practical today. Three things. The first one is this. Admit that you cannot control today or tomorrow. This sounds ridiculous, right? It's like, okay, Ryan, okay, whatever. Church, we got we to gotta acknowledge the fact that we think that we can control today and tomorrow. That's why we get anxious. We, we think that we can control these things that are out of our hand. We got to admit the fact that we, can, we have no power over those things. We need to be reminded that God is God and we're not God. That, when we remind ourselves of that, when we admit that, that's what we're saying. When I was in high school, I got my license when I was 16. I know that that's kind of a rare thing now. I, t- I talk to kids, and they're like, yeah, I'm like 18 or 19. I still don't have when, In Kentucky, man, we were like, the day that we turned 16, we were going to get our license. It was just, we were on it. So I, I got this truck, okay, because I'm in Kentucky. I live out in the country. I got this four-wheel drive Chevy, picture it, blue, navy blue Chevy custom deluxe four-wheel drive pickup truck. Oh, yeah, it was a beautiful truck. We're, we're driving. You know, I could take it out in the woods and go hunting. I, I could put stuff in the back, even though I didn't have anything to put in the back. I could, I could drive down the country roads. I didn't have air conditioner, so that was cool, too. Just kidding. So every day on my way to school in this truck, I, I, I noticed on Highway 44, I noticed this house. And it was being built. And it was, uh, it was like, I mean, in my mind, it was like the Biltmore. I mean, it was huge. It was this enormous house. And so every day I'd notice that they were building a little bit more of the foundation. There were cranes. There were all these concrete trucks, all these guys working. I, I mean, they were building a mansion. This thing was enormous. And so every day as I'm driving by, I'd look forward to the progress that they're making on the building. I would even kind of slow down and kind of rubberneck a little bit. People would be beeping at me behind me. I was enjoying looking at the progress of the work. And then one day, out of nowhere, I drive by. And the house, the the crane is gone, the concrete trucks are driving out, the guys are packing up their tools and they're leaving. The house isn't even, it's it's nowhere close to being finished. And yet they're all leaving the job. And I thought, okay, maybe they're going out to, you know, lunch or whatever, right? (laughs) I don't know what's going on here. And so week after week, month after month, I drive by this place for the next three or four years. And there's still just a foundation poured there. And it could have been, I mean, the builder, whoever built the house had these massive plans, right? I mean, they thought this house was going to be incredible. They had all these blueprints. I mean, they could show you the blueprints, everything. It's something happened. Somebody died. Somebody went bankrupt, lost their job. I don't know what happened, but here there's a half-finished, beautiful house that no one can live in. Now, where am I going with this? 
A lot of our lives, if we're honest, are like that half-finished house. We have this blueprint for what the house can look like. If you were use that metaphor there, that our, that our life is a house. Our, our lives, our houses are not complete. They're, and we're, we're disappointed and we're frustrated by the fact that our dream house isn't being built. And I think the answer that God gives us is that that was never the house that was supposed to be your life in the first place. So in admitting the fact that we can't control these things, what we say to God is we say, God, you are the architect of my life. Build me, shape me, mold me. I am the, I am the, I'm the clay and you're, you're, you're the potter. Mold me and shape me how you want to shape me. And we throw the blueprint out and we say, God, do what you want to do with our lives. The bottom line is, the best way to plan for tomorrow is to seek Jesus today. To seek him today because that's all we have. James, James says it like this. James is the half-brother of Jesus. Uh, he writes this letter and he says this in James chapter 4, verses 13 through 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Underline this in your Bible. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then it vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. So picture that I've got a, if I was a, a really good pastor, I'd have a spray bottle in my hand right now and I would show you what a mist looks like. But I don't have one. So imagine that I spray a mist into this light right here. You'll see it for a second and it'll be pretty cool and then it'll be gone. James says, this is what our life is actually like. It's, it's fascinating that we think that we can control our lives. I think about the story of Mary and Martha. Here's what I think it might look like to seek Jesus today. So there's the story of Mary and Martha. Jesus is staying at their house for some time and comes in. Mary immediately, when Jesus comes into the house, Mary kind of falls at his feet and just listens to him teach and listens to him talk. Martha's in the kitchen slaving away. And finally, Martha's kind of fed up. She says, Jesus, tell her to come help me. You know, something like that. I'm paraphrasing, obviously. But she's frustrated that Mary is not helping. And what does Jesus say to Martha? Martha, Martha, you're concerned about many things, yet Mary has chosen the better portion to sit at the feet of Jesus. That's all we can do today, church, is sit at the feet of Jesus. We've got to throw the blueprint out the window. So the second thing is this, submit to what God deals you today. So Matthew 6.33, coming back to that passage, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. The kingdom of God, friends, is much bigger than you. But here's a, here's a, here's a fact. It's, it's no smaller than you. The kingdom of God is much bigger than you, but it's no smaller than you. God has plans and purposes with your pain, with your disappointment, with your unfinished plans to sanctify and grow you unlike you could ever do for yourself. Your life is a masterpiece. God is, God is making something out of it. He's a grand artist. He's doing something with all of the things that you think are wasted. God is doing a great work through those things. And our lives, they're not mistakes. We can't control the hand we're dealt. But we do have some responsibility in how we respond to those things. Chuck Swindle said it like this, life is 10% what happens to you and 90% how you react to it, how you respond to what happens to you. So the question is, how will we respond in 2016 when we lose our job, 
or when our marriage seems to go on the rocks and we got to go to counseling, or when someone gets sick and it's not looking good, how will we respond? 20, let me be honest, 2016 might be the worst financial year that you've ever had before. We don't like to think of those things at the end of the year, do we? But it might be. Jesus is the same today, yesterday, and forever. This is why it's so important to look at today, because we don't have anything else to look at. These two Proverbs, I'm going to give you two Proverbs right here that sum up what I've been saying right here. Proverbs 19.21 says this, many are the plans in the mind of a man. Many are the plans, right? We've got plans. We've got things to do. We know how to make plans. That's one thing that we can do. But it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. So sometimes the Lord's purpose and what we're planning, those, those things line up, but often they don't line up. It's not a reason to cause you to be anxious. It's not a reason to cause you to fret. God is doing his thing. Proverbs 16, 9 says this, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes his steps. So make the plans. Go on the vision retreat. It's cool. But have them with an open hand. Submit to what God deals you this year, this day, this moment. Because the theme is the same. God is going to be God whether you like it or not. So when we submit to what God's doing and we, we seek him every day, what we're saying is, God, we just want to let you be God. And we're just going to love you and serve you and walk in you. Third thing is this, commit to have rest in your rhythm. You're like, where did that come from? To be honest, let me just be, I'm going to be real honest. This is the last thing I want to talk to you about right now. You know why this is the last thing I want to talk to you about? Because I'm terrible at it. I am terrible at resting. I'm terrible at Sabbath. I'm terrible at all those things. But if I were to limit what I talk about to, to the things that I'm good at obeying, you wouldn't get much of the Bible, okay? Let me just be real honest. I don't know about you, but the Sabbath has been one of those things that I've just pretty much disobeyed my whole life and never even considered it sin. Now, sometimes we have this theology that says, oh, you know, that was the Old Testament law. Jesus came to fulfill the law. Well, yeah, Jesus came to fulfill the law. That means that we walk in it. The Sabbath is still on the table for us. And I think many of our problems kind of creep up because we don't listen to the Lord in this area. So my question is, what would it look like in 2016 for us to put that back up on the table and, and trust the Lord? Because here's the conviction that I came to, is that many of the things that I'm involved in in life that I think are crucial things that I have to be involved in, they're not necessary. And they're keeping me from the Sabbath rest that God has intended me to live in. You see what I'm saying there? I mean, I think, I think the same might be true for a lot of us. I'm going to take you to Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 12. Now, God commands the Sabbath. He gives it at the, in the, on the Ten Commandments when Moses comes down off the mountain. Ezekiel is prophesying back about that because evidently Israelites, they've, they've kind of disobeyed in this area. So he's... He gives them this word here. Moreover, I gave them my Sabbaths. This is God speaking. Ezekiel's writing it down. As a sign between me and them. Okay, now this is really important right here. Because this is, tells us what we're doing when we don't Sabbath. That they might know that I am the Lord who sanctifies them. That is the purpose of Sabbath. That we would know and trust that it is the Lord that sanctifies us. That makes us holy that makes us more like Jesus. It's not us. It's not being involved in one more thing. It is the Lord that does this work. Church, if we were to actually believe God, our lives would absolutely be radical in this area. We live in a culture, one of the first things I realized when we came up on the scene in Atlanta is this is a busy city. I've been in a lot of cities. This is, 
It's not quite as busy as Vegas, but it's up there. This is a busy city. We're always going. We're always doing something. This is kind of the norm of what we do. And here's, here's one of the most important things about the Sabbath, is that when we Sabbath, when we rest, when we choose to say no to the idolatry of work, when we choose to say that, essentially what we're doing is we're confronting the devil and we're putting our money where our mouth is. We're saying, hey, look, I'm going to show you. There's this, there's this voice that whispers in my ear that I can never stop. I don't know if you guys have that or not. I can never stop because if I stop, what will happen if I stop? Well, then I'll have to, I'll have to slow down. I'll have to think about life. I'll have to think about my motives. I'll have to think about what's going on inside of me. And many of us don't stop because we don't want to see what's inside of us. We're scared to find out what might actually driving us. When we rest, we kind of stick it to the devil. We just kind of say, look, I'm going to stop. This mad, I'm getting off the hamster wheel. I'm going to stop, and I'm going to stop every week, and I'm going to stop. For me, I'm going to stop at every meal with my family at night. I don't care what else can come up. On a rare exception, I'm going to be away from the family table. So that's a, that's a, that's a period in the day where I say, no, you're not getting my life today. You're not getting this moment. We're going to stop and we're going to rest and we're going to enjoy the work of the Lord. I was amazed as I drove through the Jewish quarter of the old city in Jerusalem on Shabbat, which is what they call the Sabbath, the Jewish Sabbath. We're driving through the other three quarters of the town. So it's kind of split up. There's an Armenian, there's Muslim, there's a Jewish, there's a Christian quarter of town. And the Jewish quarter, so that little piece of the pie, the quarter of the town, on the Sabbath, there's nothing going on. There's no people working. It's not like people are out, you know, working out and stuff like that. There's nothing going on. You know what they're doing? They're having a meal. They're, they're, they're hanging out with their families. They're in God's word together, enjoying one another. They've hit pause on life. It's an amazing thing to see, especially when we live in the hustle and bustle of a big American city. And I found that it's a very selfish thing to work ourselves to death. And I think the lies that we believe are that we can outlive the limits that God has set for our lives. That God doesn't actually know best. That the Sabbath was for those weak Jews. But us strong Americans, we don't need the Sabbath. Come on, we can figure this out on our own. An author that I've really been gleaning a lot from is a guy named Peter Cesaro. And he says it like this. Sabbath can be terrifying. Because doing nothing productive leaves us feeling vulnerable. Now we talked about vulnerability last week if you were here. And we said that vulnerability, that the only way to, to, to get free of shame in our lives was to become vulnerable. Okay, the Sabbath is a weekly time where we become vulnerable on purpose. And he goes on to say this, we may feel emotional exposure and nakedness before God or others. Overworking hides these feelings of inadequacy or worthlessness, not just from others, but also from ourselves. So the question becomes to us, this isn't, a, this isn't a question of is this true or is this not true. This is a question of are we going to obey this or are we going to sweep it under the rug? And my great hope, church, in 2016 that we would we'd learn how to rest well. Listen, I've got four little kids now and we're starting to get involved in like extracurricular stuff. Your kids' activities play into how you Sabbath too. It's, it's, it's really good to have a plan for this. I'm not dropping a law for this. But, but it's, it's a really important to consider this because I've seen some of you and how you drive from point A to point B, and it's, it's worse than your nine-to-five job, right? You are more busy driving your kids around. It's, it's really, and I know it's complex and it's, there's lots of dynamics at play, but consider those things and how they play into how you rest because I really want to see us as a church rest well in this new year. So the big idea, just to remind you of where we were, 
where we went today is that the best way to plan for the future is to seek Jesus today. This would release us from the pressure that a new year can bring because I know if you're anything like me, I set these fitness goals, these eating goals, and by the end of January, I'm like condemned, right? Let's just hit the, let's, let's release the pressure right now and just take it off the table. And let's let Jesus be Jesus, and let's let us be us, and let's seek Jesus today. Deal? Let's pray together. Father, you are so good. You are so good to free us from the accuser uh, that's not only the devil, but ourselves. Pray that you would reveal to us this anxiety that kind of drives us to do strange and crazy things and to, to feel like we're falling into pieces on the inside. And I pray that you would give us grace to turn from those things. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to admit that we can't control anything, that you'd help us to submit to what you deal us today, and, and that we would commit to having rest in our rhythm, whatever that may look like. I, Lord, I pray that the people in, in New City Church and that are visiting here today uh, would take a step toward rest in 2016, whatever that looks like. Maybe it's like we're going to do four meals as a family this week. And we want to bump that up to five by the summer. Or maybe we're going to, 12, these 12 hours, I'm not going to do anything. I'm just going to sit and live in the Lord. And we're going to try to make that a day by next year. I don't know what it is, but I just pray that we would, we would learn how to seek you today and to live in you today. And we pray that you'd give us great grace that would empower us to be able to do that, to walk in you, to seek first your kingdom and your righteousness and trust that everything else will be added to us. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.